Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's Hardcore Football. I'm Phil Baki. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mika Burrell. Mika, what's up? Not much, Phil. How was your Thanksgiving? Because that is why we've been gone for so long. It was Thanksgiving <laughs> in the United States. So how was yours? Yeah, it was good. Um, uh, yeah, I guess like the theme of this for both of us is safe travels. Um, I yeah. Uh, yeah, I I. Uh, me and my wife uh, drove out and and spent some time with my parents and my sister. Um, so very small gathering, um, but it was good to be able to to see everyone and and obviously the drive uh, out to Virginia not quite as intense as the drive that you took over <laughs> over the week, but um, but yeah, it was it was a nice little nice little jaunt over there and Virginia actually went through a pretty nice uh, period of weather. Um, mm. so it was like nice and warm and sunny, uh, which I feel was in like stark contrast to you and you were just, you weren't that far away. No. Yeah. I was, uh, in the Appalachian mountains in North Carolina. I drove there from Texas. Um, never doing that again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I can help it, my dad always insists on driving, but yeah, we did the same thing, just a small family thing. And what better way to social distance than to go up into the mountains, you know, and just avoid people. And uh, I mean, the closest interaction I had with anyone outside of family was a giant black bear that tried to like get into our garbage at our cabin. (laughs) It was (laughs) terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, I think I saw something about that on Twitter. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to like go back to the city now. This is, this is not the life for me. Uh, (laughs) But it never came back. I don't know if it just, I, I don't know. They they came down from the mountains and were hungry, I guess. But yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, we, the weather was okay. Like there was one day that was really rainy, but other than that, it was all right. Just, it was nice to just feel the cool mountain air and just get away for a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, obviously I still tried to watch some football on my phone with like the, what little connection <laughs> I had up there or with the Wi-Fi when I was on it. But other than that, it was nice to just uh, relax and, and, and get away. Yeah, it it was definitely a, a good time to kind of disconnect and just, uh, I don't know, like after the year we've had, certainly just to to kind of de- decompress even slightly um, sure. is just uh, just a nice, a nice touch. Um, I guess before we dive into everything, just a few uh, a few things like if you are hearing this podcast for the first time, which is probably likely because we haven't, this is only episode 11. So we've got, you know, we've, we've got a nice little back catalog if you're interested. Um, but you can follow us on all the, uh, major podcast platforms, you know, Apple spot, Spotify, Google play. And, uh, you know, if you can rate or review the podcast, uh, on anything of, on any of those platforms, please do. Um, if you are, you know, if you end up enjoying the episode, head over there and, and give us a review or, or a rating because it, it does really help us out. Um, but uh, other than that, you can follow us on Twitter at HXE football. And we, uh, we normally tweet along a lot more with the games than I think we did this weekend due to the yes. holiday, but we will, <laughs> uh, we will be manning the Twitter a little bit more firmly, especially with champions league coming up this week. But um I guess as we dive in, Mika, the the big news last week that really just rattled the entire kind of football world, um, Maradona uh, passed away at the age of 60 from a heart attack. Um, I mean, for you, I, I have kind of an it, it, just a, a, some thoughts about Maradona as, as kind of the the 
um, you know, the, the image that he was and kind of this persona that he had, but what, what is your, what is your view of Maradona and, and his legacy that he leaves behind? Yeah. I mean, what can I say about Diego Armando Maradona that hasn't been said before? Obviously he's a legend, uh, a legend for, for Argentina, for his nation. And of course for the clubs that he played for probably most notably Napoli. Um, it's, it's obviously his 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 playing time his playing career was obviously way before my time of mm-hmm. watching the sport and even you know being alive um, <laughs> but uh that kind of almost adds to his mystique as a player and having watched some of his highlights from the past and and learning about the things he did of course the hand of god and um you know his time in in Spain and Italy and the like uh, it just adds that sense of mystique to him that kind of like that legend status really. Cause I can only, I could only go off of other people's experiences having seen him play. Um, but obviously it's a huge loss for the, for the football world, as you said. And it's, it's particularly tragic because 60 is a very young age to pass away. And I think, you know, I think Maradona's struggles off the pitch have been well-documented. Obviously his yeah. health has not always been the best um, post his playing days, obviously struggled a lot with drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, and, you know, I, I have no doubt that some of that must have played into his recent health issues, which is really unfortunate, of course. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just really tragic. And Argentina had, you know, three days of mourning, <laughs> national mourning, which shows you his impact on his, his home country. And um, there were, you know, so many different uh, tributes to him and, yeah, it's just very sad, but yeah, for me, obviously he's just, you know, I only got to learn about him through videos, articles, things like that. I can't imagine what it would have been like to actually watch him play. So look, those, those are some lucky people, people have seen him play. That's, that's kind of how I, I feel like looking back as someone who obviously, you know, sim, same, same deal. Like, you know, I wasn't alive even, or, or towards the tail end of his career, wasn't old enough to, you know, really appreciate, uh, Maradona while he played. Um, so his, his whole, like Maradona, the player for me is almost like someone describing like a myth to me, like, like right. Hercules or Zeus or something like that. Like that is the, <laughs> it, it's, it's so uh, the moments are so powerful and are so kind of all encompassing that they almost feel uh, not real. Like they almost feel, uh, yeah, just so much larger than life. Like he sure. had this kind of like small, this short playing career, you know, all things considered, it's not like, you know, Messi who has this like, huge massive body of work for us to appreciate and and kind of take in week after week um it was relatively short compared to compared to what we expect i guess now from the all-time greats but he he had such an impact um and like you said the hand of god and and but really like for me the the thing that kind of i guess uh hit home for me today is the fact that i Obviously, his goals have been replayed a lot in in the recent days, and especially that goal against the second goal against England in in 1986, the the run that starts in midfield, and um, you know I think is encapsulated by that commentate the Argentinian commentator Genio, 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 like that that like yeah. call of that goal, and it 
it got me, which is crazy because I ne- I didn't know him as a player. I didn't know, but I felt the kind of emotion around just how important he was to his nation, how important he was to the clubs that he that he played for, particularly like you said, Napoli, which is now kind of where they are, like as a club, at least partially due to the fact that Maradona played there, which is crazy to think about. He literally like raised the stature of of a a club just by existing there. Absolutely. And he he moved to Napoli at a time that, you know, I suppose isn't unlike Unlike recent times where the northern clubs tend to dominate, it, you know, the Italian football landscape, the the Inters, the Milans, the Juventuses and the like. So, you know, for them to to land Maradona was such a coup <laughs> and and they're a huge club today. And I have no doubt that it has something, you know, it, it is thanks to him in part. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just I, I think of him in the blue of Napoli. You know, of course, he had his stints at at, at Sevilla and, and Barcelona and stuff. But yeah, he's absolutely a, a Napoli icon. And um, yeah, it's just it's really sad. I mean, I know he remember at the beginning of November, they had reported that he had some kind of like hematoma that he was getting treated for. They said it wasn't serious. But um, I mean, who knows? And who knows if that was related to, to the later heart attack or anything. But again, it's just sad. 60 is so young. Like that's it not is. even with the, with the, uh, you know, with modern medicine, that's barely middle aged anymore, you know? And so uh, it's, it's really sad. Definitely. It is. And, and there was obviously a huge outpouring, like you said, the three days of mourning in Argentina, but um, tributes from, you know, Argentina's best player, uh, at the moment and, and someone who is, you know, has been spending his career trying to live up to, to Maradona's legacy, Lionel Messi, he, uh, scores in Barcelona's win over Osasuna and takes off his Barca shirt to reveal a Newell's old, old boys, Maradona number 10 shirt underneath, uh, his old club and Maradona spent a, a short stint there. Um, and then Lorenzo Insigne scoring a, a belter of a free kick to open the scoring against Roma this weekend for Napoli and running over and holding up a Maradona number 10 Napoli shirt. Um, it just goes to show what a massive icon this this man was. Yeah, absolutely. The Messi celebration, I think that's going to be an iconic photo of not only this season, but maybe just football generally. It was such a touching tribute. Um, I had forgotten that Maradona had that, that brief stint at Newell's old boys. <laughs> and obviously that's a club very close to Messi's heart, but I love the Napoli celebrations. Um, Lorenzo, Antina, he's a Napoli legend in his own right. I'm sure coming through the Napoli Academy, like he probably heard about Maradona all his life, you know, and, and probably got to watch a little bit of the end of his career at least. Um, and um, I think Dries Mertens scored too. And he had, recently maybe last season or so the season before i can't quite recall he had you know surpassed maradona's scoring record at the club right and um i think he scored too and that that must have been emotional for him but yeah napoli i i saw aurelio de Laurentiis suggesting that they want to rename the stadio san paulo to something in uh maradona's um memory which would be really cool that would be um but uh yeah it was and you know they you know, they demolished Roma. So <laughs> I think Maradona was definitely, his spirit was definitely there. And, and you know, 
um, allowing Napoli to play to their full potential. But yeah, a lot of good tributes all around, all around football, really. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I think um, everyone, you know, the, the tributes won't soon end. And he's certainly one of those, one of those uh, icons in the game that long after his death, he'll continue to, to be present and, and referenced in the game for, for decades and decades and, you know, maybe centuries to come. Um, he is, he, you know, larger than life, as we said, and, uh, and now, uh, the, the tributes will, will certainly continue, but, um, you know, rest in peace to a, a great footballer, um, and, and the pride of a nation, certainly. Um, well, Mika, do, do you think now that we've, I guess, ventured through the somber territory, you want to take a quick break and we can uh, come back and talk some Premier League? Sounds good. Welcome back to Hardcore Football. Um Next Premier League, the the weekend started off bright and early on Saturday morning with Brighton hosting Liverpool. Um, I put in the notes a tale of two a tale of two screens, a game of two screens. We talk about games of two halves, uh, games of two screens. This one, it oh God, was <laughs> that's where the game's gone. The VAR screen <laughs> and uh, the TV screen itself. Um, but Brighton Liverpool, like it, obviously stirred up a bunch of controversy. I mean, where do you, where would you rather start? Would you rather start with Klopp battering the uh, the the TV broadcasters or VAR? Oh my goodness! Okay, first I have to admit, I guess I did not see the entirety of the Klopp mm-hmm. the Klopp tirade. Do you want to? Yeah. Give me a little summary. <laughs> yeah. So Klopp's uh Klopp's whole take. This was this was post match and obviously like Liverpool had had this this tough draw. I think I'll start things by saying that uh Liverpool were not were by far not at their not at their free flowing best and certainly like, you know, a couple of close calls, the Salah goal being chalked off for offside was definitely a little harsh. Um, but it is, you know, it's how VAR works. Like we, we've gotten similar close calls, uh, you know, for, for Liverpool. Um, mm-hmm. it seems like this season it's particularly been like one-sided, but I think with the nature of our forwards without getting too much into it, like we're always in danger of having that sort of thing. Cause we have guys who play on the edge and play on the back shoulder, like Salah and Mane, who both were in the end chalked off or had goals chalked off for offside. Um, the uh, Brighton like played well in spurts, and I, I guarantee if Brighton had a had a bona fide striker, I swear to God they'd be like competing for Europe. Like they would, they <laughs> they are so. Good. It's funny because their their front three are all strikers. <laughs> oh yeah, no, if they and had. Yet- and yet, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, Connolly, Maupe, and Trossard all have the ability to be very, very good on their day. And Danny Welbeck, and none of them, Welbs. and none of them were. And Welbs didn't really have. Uh, to be fair, Welbs didn't really have much of a sniff like until very late. Um, he didn't yeah. really get the chances, or they didn't fall to him. Maybe he takes some of the chances that you know Connolly 
and Trossard like got on the end of, and certainly Malpe with the uh, with the missed pen, um, which is a bit of a theme uh, for <laughs> for old Neil. But the Klopp thing was came down to it was James Milner went off injured, um, which obviously adding to the litany of injuries that that Liverpool are currently facing, not dissimilar from last year's title rivals Man City, who have, I think, now equal amounts of injuries. Uh, I think it's like 16 first-team players for both um, for both teams, which obviously, you know, feeds into Klopp uh, went into something that he's harped on now for a couple of weeks, which is basically if if we're playing on the Champions League, in the Champions League on Wednesday, we should not be eligible to play in the early kickoff on Saturday, um, which is decided entirely by the broadcasters. So the way that he went about it was Des Kelly, the BT sport interviewer in the post-match said James Milner went off with a hamstring injury and he was like, or he's like, James Milner went off. Like, is it, you know, the injury concerns? And he basically said, yeah, it's a hamstring. Congratulations. Um, and he's like, Damn. what, to me personally? He said, well, no, not you personally, but you work for them, right? Like, and went on this whole kind of argument, which I think BT, cynically, I think BT wanted. Like, I think they wanted the content. Um, however, Klopp went into this back and forth with Des Kelly and and it it was a whole a whole thing. Basically, an argument that's been going on forever, which is Klopp favors... Like this is a, a similar thing that Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer said a couple of weeks ago when they played in the early game against Everton after having gone to Bashak Shahir on Wednesday, they had to come back and play a, a twelve thirty kickoff or a um whatever that is in yeah, twelve thirty kickoff in, in England on that Saturday. Uh whereas the Liverpool City game was on Sunday, um having Liverpool having played Wednesday, whatever. Basically, that and the five subs rule was Klopp's whole um, agenda is Mm -hmm. the the clubs playing in the Champions League shouldn't be eligible for the early kickoffs on, you know, with three days after they play in Europe. And then uh, because I think I mean, yeah, um, so there's that. And then the five subs rule, which was just barely kind of voted down in the in the summer and now there's been like renewed calls for it to be brought back just due to the amount of injuries um and so yeah Klopp was Klopp was definitely on one um in this one <laughs> I mean I can't I can't necessarily fault him I mean the injury crisis at Liverpool is insane um you, I mean, you kind of brought up, Phil, that it's not unheard of. I mean, City, like you said, I think 16 injuries overall is correct. I think they've got two injuries right now currently, so they've got people back. But, right. um, you know, in the interest of balance, though, like I think every club is probably dealing with this, um, you know, and I think that Liverpool is definitely going to attract more attention obviously they are the defending champions um they've won so much over their you know the past couple years and I almost I mean do you have any feelings at all that it's maybe 
uh, as a result of those exploits over the years in in Europe in in the league. I mean, two straight seasons. I mean, one you did win the championship, one you lost by a point. You know, it's yeah. I, I almost feel like yeah, it has something to do with like the the short end. Um, you know, preseason and all that. But I wonder also if it has something to do with just the sheer amount of games they've played previously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think to an extent, um, there was always going to be some kind of knock on, uh, effects. I think obviously it's worsened by all of those because you can't really, you can't account for the freak injuries, uh, that happen in a game like Van Dyke and Tiago who have been sure. out since the Merseyside Derby from, you know, those, those, uh, challenges. Um, so, the only thing that I think, you know, you can try to manage out is the muscle injuries and just hope, you know, for the most part, like if we can keep them fit, if we can manage the minutes, then we can at least minimize the risk of those. Um, but yeah, I think, I think ultimately these guys are playing, you know, upwards of, and once you put internationals into it, these guys are playing like close to 60, 70 games a season like yeah i mean mean, that's that that workload for i always think of alexis sanchez like his drop-off is because he played 60 70 games a season for like three four years yeah um and uh i wonder in the case of some of liverpool's older world-class players if we might see something similar obviously i don't wish that because you know i'm not a liverpool fan but at the end of the day i like to see the best players in the world at their best and yeah i think definitely we are kind of like working them into the ground and um <laughs> the, <laughs> the yeah the sheer amount of fixtures is insane i don't i don't really i don't necessarily blame Klopp. i don't again i don't think that the problem is unique to liverpool but i don't blame yeah. him for expressing it that way and you're probably right bt probably wanted that hashtag content <laughs> um, <laughs> which is so cynical but that's just how that's just how that goes i guess that industry yeah um Mike Pendleton uh, asked on Twitter, just Brighton, why? Um, <laughs> and I think I think he's a Liverpool fan. So I think uh, I think that it's just essentially, you know, he could he may as well have just asked his question as the Will Smith pain meme. Like because <laughs> um, it was it. I, now, the the question of the foul, it's the last the last thing, the question of of the penalty um it's it was much you know talked about and everything is it just a matter of like it may not have been a penalty ever before in the past because it's so hard to spot in real time but with var like it it kind of just is now yeah i think that's right and i think and I think even Andy Robertson would agree, and I think he did come out and say that he's got no problem with the fact that it is a foul. Because in midfield, that's a foul. I mean, that gets called quite a bit. You know, you're responsible for where your limbs go, even you know if they kick someone intentionally or not. It's a foul. Yeah. Um, and I've always, I've always been on the side of like call fouls in the box, even if they don't cause the attacker to go down, because maybe that will take diving out of the game a little bit. Sure. So. You know, in theory, I still am with that. And then I see a call like this and it's like, well, <laughs> that's <laughs> a bit harsh. But I think it is, uh, like you said, just a, a consequence, if you will, of VAR and just the exacting precision now that we're applying to a game that has historically 
not been so precise, like right. in terms of like the timekeeping and, you know, extra time, injury time. That's always been kind of like random, even though there is somewhat of a formula. And then, um, you know, just referee calls, line linesman calls. And now we're using technology to to draw lines to to the centimeter of, yeah. of you know, different plays. It's just, I don't know. It's, um, I don't know if I'm to the point where I'm like scrap VAR, but I don't know what the answer is. What, how do you kind of feel on that? I, I feel the same. I, I think, I think the, the minutia is getting to the point and the, the exactness of the decisions is getting absurd to the point of like hardly being able to like some of these games and literally in Liverpool's case, when Salah scored, I was like, Oh, nope. Like just wait, like, let's see if he was off. And you know, there's only a few, there's only a few goals that you can truly like, I mean, maybe, you know, it has to be like a banger from outside the box. And even then you might have to check for offside. Like if there's a player in front of foul in the buildup, I just, I just think that everything is, it's just putting that. And I think, who who was I think it was Nuno Espirito Santo to give to give him some credit I think initially that it was like just taking the joy out of things a little bit and that's what I feel it's just so exacting and precise that you just don't know what to do as a fan like you don't really know how to feel about whatever's happening in front of you and if you let yourself celebrate are you just setting yourself up to be let down when you know the VAR check comes in for uh you know did it brush a hand uh, in the buildup? And I think it's really interesting to Nuno's point and your point about taking the joy out of the game. Cause I think at least initially the intent of VAR was to <laughs> laughably now minimize controversy and, and by minimizing controversy, controversy, it would minimize some of the utter despair that fans have felt over the years for incorrect calls for cheating and I'm, you know, I know that's a loaded word, but some things that, you know, some plays that have been straight up cheating right. that you wouldn't have seen without VAR. So that's kind of, I think the balance that we all as fans have to ask ourselves, like, what, what do we prefer is like giving up some of that joy for accuracy or a lot of that joy or going back to the way it was. And there's going to be some absolute moments of, sheer injustice <laughs> right <laughs> um i mean like when VAR, when var first came i remember arsenal went up to old trafford and played manchester united and obama yang he he went in and scored a goal and he was clearly like clearly on side and they had to check it to give it <laughs> and i i remember thinking like if there was no var and this goal got chalked off like i would have been fucking furious right you know and so but maybe that's a different question. Maybe that's just like the quality of refereeing yeah. in, in England and in the game. But I just remember thinking like, yeah, without VAR like that would have been one of the injustices of like sure. Arsenal fandom. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so I don't know, I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what we as fans have to wrestle with and what we prefer. I'm, I almost prefer like the, almost the way it was, or, or maybe just limiting VAR to like factual decisions and not sure. it's clear and obvious. That's a standard that, is not clear and obvious. <laughs> right. And I think the you know, inconsistency clear. of clear and obvious is, okay, we can go back and check like whether Robertson kicked the bottom of, of Danny Welbeck's uh, boot, mm-hmm. but we're not going to go back and check if Harry Maguire has scissors, Pelicueta in a headlock in the box. 
Like, right. So oh how, God. if we're going to get forensic, like if we're going to get forensic, when are we going to, and is it just completely arbitrary on when we decide? Cause if you got that forensic in the box, every single time someone entered the box, you'd probably have cause to give a penalty at any point. Like every single corner kick you'd have, you'd have a reason to give a pen every, every you, single, yeah. like, so, I mean, that's where the injustice I think comes in or where Liverpool fans can feel aggrieved is it's like, okay, yes, it might be a foul, but how granular are we willing to get here? Like at what point do you say like, okay, we didn't see it in real time. Even when I watch it back, it doesn't look like a lot like in real time. It's Mm -hmm. only when I slow it down that it even looks like a, that I can see the contact. So I guess that's the thing is just that consistency of the application of clear and obvious. Like, what does that even mean? Cause I, th- I've, and I feel like the rules yeah. change and the guidelines change on a practically weekly basis with the PGMOL in, you know, the premier league. And um, so that's where I think the, a lot of the injustice comes from is it's like, okay, well you decided to, to get like anal about it now, but you know, where is this like, <laughs> the rest of the time, you know, that's a, you know, what, yeah. Yeah. So it's an and interesting it, like to discussion for sure. And to like come back full circle, I guess, to, to Klopp's comment is, and here's where I get into like conspiracy territory, but I think the broadcasters almost want this. Like they almost want more goals. Um, they want more of a spectacle and you're right. I think if we analyze every single like entry into the box, there's going to be something arguably penalty worthy yeah. to call there. And I, that's where I almost feel like the broadcasters have agreed amongst themselves that this is what's best for, for the game for, <laughs> for, you know, packaging it as a product and, and selling it to the world. But, you know, getting into conspiracy territory there. So yeah. well, and fun fact, the 1230 time slot that that 1230 kickoff only exists um, because of the global nature of like it was implemented because of kickoff times in other countries, um, particularly Asia to catch those mm. audiences before it was, you know, it's basically prime time in Asia. Um, so like it's a, massive you know like kickoff time for parts of the world um yeah it also means you know in england it is 12 30 on a saturday so that has you know real world consequences for the human beings actually providing the product yeah (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) um so the uh, moving on, and I think we may need to be, I guess, brief with the rest of the Premier League as a result. <laughs> but um, but the thing uh, the the next game, this was you talked about wanting goals um, for a better product. Leeds seem hell bent on providing them. It's just a one nil win over Everton, but this felt like the type of win that Bielsa has been wanting to get where. Hit, this is like Leeds as advertised, dominating the ball and at away from home, dominating the ball and creating just boatloads of chances. Yeah, I mean it's it's Bielsa ball in full flow, um, and they play the same way week in week out for better or for worse, um, which you kind of I think as a neutral have to respect. Um, Everton 
though, have been shocking. The only win they've had since the Merseyside Derby was against Fulham, and that was barely 3-2. So, you know, good on Leeds, but Everton are a soft touch at the moment, and uh, they need to turn it around quick. Um, Which, you know, it's funny because they're, like, in such bad form, but the table doesn't necessarily tell you that, um, which just tells you how insane the season has been. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no um, big ups to Leeds. That's a big result. And to keep clean sheet on the road is, is always, is always nice. And Bielsa gets one on, on Carlo Ancelotti, who's obviously a world-class manager, one with, with tons of titles under his belt. So yeah, good result for sure. Yeah. And, and I think the manner in which they do it, they do give up a lot of chances um, as well. And, and Everton probably, uh, maybe should have scored um from a couple of of opportunities but um but yeah leads leads deserved the win in my mind um with the the clear cut chances they created and of their 23 shots 18 of them were inside of the 18 yard box so like oh my god they they were they were dangerous. Um, XG monsters. <laughs> yeah. And their XG was over three in this game from open oh, play, goodness. which is wild because we've often seen games with a three XG and in similar to City's game against Burnley with a five goal margin, not a one goal margin. So, um, yeah, Leeds with a little bit of luck might have been even better off against Everton. But their uh, yeah, Everton's slide continues Um for uh for the time being um to the south coast southampton to manchester united three um southampton took took the lead uh from from a james ward prowse delivery added a second from a james ward prowse three free kick which those are feeling like penalties uh, in their own right when you give a free kick away to James Ward-Prowse. Um, but United fought back and Edinson Cavani absolutely central to the comeback. Yeah, I feel like Edinson Cavani finally really announced himself um, to the Manchester United faithful with two goals and an assist coming on off the bench. Um I really liked the assist for for Bruno Fernandes from it's a cross from the wing. It reminded me of Cavani at PSG when when Zlatan was there and he kind of had to play out wide to accommodate him and and that's the thing about Cavani that um I think is really special about him is not only is he a deadly finisher and and his movement is world class but he can also act as a foil for his teammates and he does that um superbly with setting up um Fernandes and then of course the two goals that he scores are like to me, just like quintessential Cavani, like movement um, and quintessential like strikers goals. Uh, so yeah, Southampton are going to be sick about this one. They've, <laughs> they haven't, I don't think they had lost since the, since Spurs. Yeah. Um, which with that, that was in late September. Um, so yeah, Ralph Austin, those boys are going to be very disappointed to let this one slip away. And um, United, man, they're, <laughs> Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is really good at beating sides that have managers who are kind of like, they made this point on uh, football daily uh, managers that are like liked by the hipsters, <laughs> like the, the tactical, like, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like the Hasenhuls of the world, yeah. like the, you know, the, the younger up and coming managers who are tactically astute. Like he's, yeah. he's beaten him. He's beaten, uh, 
Thomas Tuchel and, and the like, and, and on United are a good comeback team too. So, yeah. I mean, you know, credit to yeah, them. Southampton will Nagelsmann be as well. Nagelsmann as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just thought Germans, that was funny. All the Germans <laughs> are just catching hands from Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I, I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, this, this game to me is like the classic, um, well, Cavani, like you said, the movement from Cavani for especially for his first, I believe. I when I saw it in real time, I'm like, he's offside. There's mm. no way. But the way that he moves and creates space for himself, he stays on and at the very like times his run absolutely perfectly. Yeah. And he's just like maintains that position where he I I would have bet money that he was off after seeing it in real time. But it's just because of his ability to to see the space and, and move into it like exa- with the, the perfect timing. It's just like such a such a like experienced striker move um, and obviously hugely talented still. Um, and like, yeah, well, he and Yannick, Yannick Vestergaard also like decides to drop back into the goal, which. Yeah. I see some people kind of battering him for his performance on the two goals, but I think Cavani's just that good. I, I wouldn't even really blame Vestergaard too too much on those. But yeah, yeah, and I think he I think he sees Vestergaard too and sees that opportunity to to move into the space and just yeah he he is I think he just sees everything happen so quickly in front of him. Um, he's a master of recognition and being in the right place at the right time, and has been for you know ever so it's just yeah it's just more of the same from Cavani and and I'm sure United are delighted to be able to bring a guy like him in off the bench um and yeah for Southampton not a banner day by any stretch of the imagination but I think it's I think it comes with the territory with a team like this because they're going to have a lot of games where they impress people um but they're going to have this game. It, it, it's reminiscent of Klopp's early Liverpool teams, in my opinion. I'm not saying that Southampton are headed to, you know, the top of the league anytime soon or anything like that. But I, I do think they have trouble putting teams away, um, despite having some really great, like, attacking ability. And, and even in this one, they didn't show it as much because they, you know, set piece goals. Um, mm-hmm. But... But yeah, I think uh, the Southampton team is going to be prone to games like this against like the big six sides. For sure. Um, The next, this was billed obviously as the big game of the weekend. Tottenham versus Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Um, This, I don't know how you felt about this one, but this felt to me like watching Jose Mourinho like as an internet troll would describe him <laughs> just like this was bus. Yeah. <laughs> like this was the, he, he parked the bus firmly at Stanford bridge and like still almost got the smash and grab in the end. But mm-hmm. Chelsea just, just had that, that look of that frustrated team that is just banging their heads against the wall, trying to come up with something to, to break through a, a Jose Mourinho low block. Yeah. I think, uh, Jose Mourinho would never admit it, but I think he just didn't want to lose. I don't know if it was necessarily about going out there and winning, but just not losing at Stamford Bridge. And, but I got to give credit to Edouard Menti for for Chelsea. I mean, he's had a very good start to to life in in the blue, 
And, um, you know, he kept he kept them in the game for some of the chances that Tottenham a- a- actually did get eventually. So, yeah, I was I was hoping for more goals <laughs> out of this one. And I, I wanted I kind of wanted Chelsea to, to put one on, on Spurs and bring them back down down to earth and down the table um, because I think they're currently first, which is sickening. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh it's an odd one. And I guess they all, they, you know, end up just canceling each other out. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's an element for Jose of not just going back to his old employer, but facing off against Lampard. Mm. I feel like there's so much more onus and there's so much more for Jose to lose if he does lose to to Lampard, to Lampard. And I think at the bridge, I don't think anyone would have begrudged Spurs a loss here because Chelsea's been playing really well recently. They've been scoring they've been scoring a lot. They've been defending really well. Um so I don't think anyone's been would have said oh like, you know, Spurs are finished after a loss at at the bridge, but I think for him personally and his ego he could not suffer a loss to his old player. It just like he couldn't, he couldn't abide that. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And at the end of the day, I think Chelsea and Tottenham on current form are pretty evenly matched. So I guess the result is almost fair, fair enough um, for, for the neutrals watching. Um, And and yeah, no, I think you're right. Again, I think he just didn't want to lose. (laughs) And if, if they could win away, that would have been just a bonus, but um yeah, hopefully, hopefully next time is a little bit more exciting, at least in the goal scoring department. <laughs> I will say I don't love seeing Kai Havertz on the bench because I worry that Lampard is running out of ideas for Kai. And I Ugh. that would be just tragic if this move doesn't become fruitful. Um, and uh, yeah, Mason Mount still starting in what would basically be Kai Havertz kind of area that he would want to occupy. Um, so, uh, an interesting one for, for their big money man from Leverkusen. Yeah. One to watch. And, and, you know, Mason Mount is a good player and he's Frank Lampard's protege. And so I think you and I had already expressed some concerns that it would be hard to displace him and he doesn't have the best performance in this one. I think he gets a card and doesn't really offer much offensively. So, um, we'll see what happens with, with Kai there. Now, Mika, we have to unfortunately talk about the uh, another result this weekend at the Emirates. <laughs> Arsenal one, Wolves two. Um, lots of fallout on Twitter from this one. Um, I think with Arsenal being the vocal fan base that it is, uh, you're always likely to see and kind of live the meltdown uh, as it as it occurs. <laughs> but what did you make of this this Arsenal performance against Wolves? And and I guess you know is are the panic bells ringing for you? Hmm. Are the panic bells ringing? I mean, no. I, I mean, look, I'm not happy with the way that we're playing. Obviously, it's it's not good enough. Um it's a lot of the same old problems for Arsenal at the moment. Uh, and, you know, especially in this one, just the midfield is just dire. I mean, there is no attacking intent coming out of this midfield of on, t- on this day, it was Shaka and, and Ceballos. Um, 
you know, one player who's on loan from Real Madrid and may not stay and another who, well, I love is not probably not good enough. <laughs> um, and it, we're probably watching Granit last season at Arsenal, to be fair. Um, you know, there's no Thomas Partey. We've lost him for several more weeks due to injury. So at the moment, the club just feels cursed. <laughs> um, our, our, you know, 45 million pound man who is our best midfielder uh, is not available. And so that that definitely hurts. But either way, the the creativity or lack thereof was present with him in the squad as well. And um, and it also seems like the attacking players are just all out of form at the same time. And, you know, I hesitate to to I hesitate to think that all all of the attack can be out of form at the same time. I think it more has to do with the system and the way that we're playing, because it just doesn't seem possible that like William Oba Laka can all just be trash at the same time. It doesn't make any sense to me, um, you know, and some people might disagree and, and that's fine. But uh, yeah, it's and, and Obama Yang, that's just like such a shame that, you know, as Arsenal fans, we've been burned by this before where we tie down a star to a big new contract and they just stop showing up. And his body language has been awful. I mean, he looks totally disinterested, maybe even a little bit pissed off, which I understand because he's not getting much service and he's never been a player that's like on the ball. He's very much off the ball. And so when people are saying, well, he's not, you know, doing enough to get on it. It's like, no, this is who Obama Yang is, you know, but the the body language from the captain is, um, you know, as cliche as that might sound, it is, it is a little bit concerning. So panic bells, maybe not yet, but it's pretty bad. It's pretty freaking dire. (laughs) (laughs) So I Um, guess that that feeds into Fernie's, into Fernie's question, uh, is the Arteta project doomed? I don't know that it's doomed. I just think that I think number one, I think Arsenal signal to the fans and to themselves when they hired Mikel Arteta that this is going to be a long-term project because you don't hire an inexperienced manager in his first big job without, I think at least without the intention of seeing it through for some years. Sure. Because if you wanted quick results now, you hire Ancelotti, you hire, um, you know, someone experienced like that. Pochettino. Um, Pochettino. <laughs> Benitez. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that they are, com- I think the club is committed to him for the medium to long term. I hope that they are because I think he is a talented manager. I think he's still got a lot to learn how quickly he learns that will definitely inform how well he does at Arsenal. But um, I wouldn't say it's doomed just yet. I just think that there are things beyond Mikel Arteta that are contributing to the footballing disaster class that we're seeing (laughs) at the moment. And that, uh, that I think truly that Arteta spited with some of his, with his FA cup triumph and with the community shield and with some of the big results against city against Liverpool and, and the like, I think that he set the team up in a way that he sets the team up in a way that, that gets those results in those big games. But sometimes he plays that same way against wolves against Aston Villa. And it's like, no, like <laughs> we kind of got to, you know, got to do something different with that. And he definitely is, he doesn't trust the players. I think, I think he doesn't trust them to, to just allow them to attack and, and that and the midfielders trash. So not doomed, (laughs) but we'll see. 
for the obviously the big initial incident um, in this one, Raul Jimenez uh, suffering an unfortunate clash of heads uh, with David Luiz. Um, turns out Raul has a fractured skull, had to undergo a, uh, a an operation um, there in London, uh, is doing well, stable, all of that uh, post-surgery, and obviously happy to, to hear that, that Raul is doing good. That was a very even as far as as clashes of heads go, which you know you see it frequently. I would say, and in, in you know it's not infrequent in in soccer with the amount of headers going in and everything. But as far as they go, it, it was like immediately apparent that that was way worse. It sounded sickening. Yeah, to be fair, I didn't see exactly what happened, but I heard it. And I think that's almost worse. Um, the The sound of it was just horrifying. Um, obviously, I I'm sure I speak for Arsenal fans when I say that we hope that Raúl is 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 recovering well and and that this doesn't affect his playing career long term. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when I saw the uh, alert that he had a fractured skull was Ryan Mason for Hull, yeah. a very promising player who had a similar injury and had to retire from the game at, at you know, in his prime. Um, but then, you know, you see players like Petr Cech who had serious head injury as well and were able to, to still be one of the best goalkeepers of his generation. Yeah. So I think, you know, there is hope in that regard that that he will be okay and will be able to make a full recovery but obviously it's early days and and we'll have to see he's obviously hugely important to Nuno Espirito Santo's side and and to Mexico um and and yeah it's very it's very sad obviously we have friends who are Wolves fans and and you know it's 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 terrible I hope that he gets better soon the Wolves performance despite such a, a heavy loss. I think, you know, in, in losing Jimenez, I think it's a, obviously a narrow win. Gabriel kind of, kind of brings it back into, you know, obviously equalizes at the time, but, but Wolves quickly kind of reasserted control um, with the potence goal. But overall Wolves, they just, they, I mean, it's a good Wolves performance. They like really got at Arsenal every time they got forward. It seemed like they were dangerous. It was like more of what we've been, I think, expecting from Wolves this season overall. Like we haven't seen it as much, but now are we maybe seeing the Wolves side that we were expecting to see from the start? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Adama Traore was incredible again. He completely torched Kieran Tierney a couple times. Um, which I don't think there's any shame in that. I think fullbacks get torched on a weekly basis by yeah. Adama Traore, and K- KT's no different. He also makes, you know, kind of a fool of Shaka in the midfield <laughs> as well. Um, thing about Wolves, too, that that I like is is I think between Pedro Neto and, and Daniel Podence, they've kind of replaced Diogo Jota pretty well. Um, the, between the two of them, the production is is quite good. The movement's very good. Um, they offer a lot of those things that Jota used to offer. And it seems like they're finally, I would say, have moved on from Jota, who obviously is doing very well at Liverpool. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, what was team building uh, over the summer and then some of the performances we've seen this season have been very good. There, there are a lot. Arsenal and Wolves are quite 
similar in a lot of ways and that we're not necessarily crazy about having the ball, which I can't believe I'm saying about an Arsenal side. But, um, <laughs> you know, in this one, Wolves were able to, to you know, rally from obviously the horror injury for, for Raul and, and get the result and fair play to them. And uh, you mentioned Adama Traore's performance. Uh, obviously, Rob Holding had a little bit to say about uh, Adama Traore. Holding. In case you couldn't hear, because the audio is a little shaky, but yeah, Rob Holding uh, fouled Adama Traore, or was a judge to have fouled Adama Traore, and uh, threw the ball and said he's built like a fucking brick brick shithouse. How has he gone down like that? Um, And uh, yeah, I just thought that was hysterical with all the conversation always around Adama's size. uh, Rob Holding, you know, giving it to the referee as a result. (laughs) And his like hardcore Mancunian accent coming out at the same time. (laughs) Um, Uh, But yeah, post this performance, I think obviously it, you know, the meme always used to be kind of Arsenal fan TV and, and all that stuff. But the, the question for Valentino, uh, Valentin Quintero, um, why do Arsenal fans turn so quickly on players, manager, like the club in general? Why, why, yeah. What is it about the fan base that seems to kind of trigger this emotional response to losses like this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I want to be careful and not generalizing all Arsenal fans because I think what we see a lot of is social media, the fans on social media, and they're just a subset of the greater arsenal, you know, fandom. And, and, you know, I don't think it's, it's necessarily unique to our club and having these like meltdowns and like hashtag Arteta out and all the bullshit that comes along with, you know, a bad (laughs) result or a string of bad results. But in Arsenal's case specifically, and and this is going to sound kind of like, you know, kind of like backhanded compliments almost, but like, I think Arsenal are a massive club. And even in our banter era, we still have won trophies. And so the expectation continues to remain high, even though what we see on the pitch and the the transfer moves being made and the behind the scenes turmoil at, at the executive level doesn't match that. So I think it's that, is that like, I mean, really, like in our banter, we've won like FA Cups. And so it's like hard to, I guess, reckon with that as a fan. It's very, it's a toxic relationship for sure. (laughs) Because we do get, you know, our new manager who's not even been in the job a year has won, you know, two trophies if you consider the Community Shield a trophy. And yet he's going through this, this slump and, um, it, you know, our expectations are always just sky high. And it, I think that's why is people just react, knee jerk reactions and, and social media. I mean, it gives you that platform to instantly say what you think without maybe thinking about it. And so I think at least when the social media fans are concerned, that's kind of why you see this negativity. But I, I definitely don't think it's it's, uh, you know, unique to Arsenal necessarily. Yeah. And I think that's important to to call out because it is. I think every every fan base of any of any big club has that sort of um, potential because it is so large um, and it has the potential for, you know, those individuals to kind of stoke uh, stoke 
the fires of, you know, discontent and, and all of that on social media, it is not necessarily a indication of the fan base at large. Um, but yeah, it does, it does seem to quickly get out of control. And, and I mean, certainly in the patch that Arsenal are going through at the moment, it is, it is more, you know, they're going to be more prone to this sort of, this sort of emotional reaction. Um, and I think it, I think it's kind of normal. Um, from, from what I've seen, some of the reactions are obviously way over the top. Um, but sure. it is, uh, it is easy to get caught up in the, in the emotion of a, a patch like this. Um, but our, our resident Wolves fan who you, uh, mentioned earlier, Christian Canales, uh, he, he asked on Twitter just about now that we're like a quarter of the way through the season for the premier league, who do you think ends up in the like champions league and Europa league spots? Like who, who qualifies for Europe? in your mind, uh, out of this group? Oh, it's such a crazy season. Um, I think the only thing that I'm really comfortable committing to right now is I think Liverpool, Chelsea and Spurs are a lock for Europe. I don't know which Europe, whether that's Champions (laughs) League or Europa League, but the other three spots for Europe, I think are very much up for grabs. Um, the other three automatic qualifying spots, obviously. Um, I mean, Southampton could maybe grab, you know, a Europa League spot, maybe Everton if they get their act together. Arsenal, actually, I think that our chances are quickly diminishing. I think our current Europa League campaign is becoming increasingly more important. Uh, Wolves, of course, uh, all have a shot. But yeah, Leeds even, Leeds too. Um, But it's it's hard to say. The the only three, uh, the the aforementioned three that I just spoke about are the only ones that I'm comfortable say could definitely make it into Europe, but I don't know who else. I mean, city are currently and United are currently like at sea with Arsenal. (laughs) So it's just tough to, to imagine what it's going to be like. Yeah. Cities, cities only two points above Arsenal. Um, So, I mean, (laughs) that's it. Arsenal's in crisis city are title contenders. So, you know, there's no, like what the hell. um, (laughs) And, to be clear, fifth uh, and thirteenth are separated by three points, um, and West Ham is fifth. So, I predictions to, like, at this put point. The clown makeup on about West Ham, by the way. I, I know West Ham win again today. Goodness. Although, in fairness, Villa uh, a, a a dicey offside call against Ollie Watkins bails uh, bails West Ham out. Um, I did see the screenshots of that, and that looked extremely sus. Yeah, almost like a stumble, and his arm went for it. Like he's vying with the defender, and his arm goes forward kind of naturally, and now he's yeah. off because his arm goes forward to catch his balance. Like that's how ridiculous, crazy this is. Um, and then uh, shout out. I mean, in the other game of the day, Fulham um, climbing out of the relegation zone and with a win over Leicester of all teams um, who, you know, were fourth <laughs> entering that <laughs> and are fourth entering, you know, uh, having played that game. Um, but Fulham, that's a really good result and a really yeah. important three points. Yeah, absolutely. Leicester, Leicester are a weird side. Like I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, they have no draws. Like they either win or lose, like, <laughs> you know, that's it. Um, but, but the, yeah, they're another one. I think that could possibly sneak into Europe as well. 
Well, speaking of Europe, we've got loads more uh, European football to talk about. Um, we'll go, uh, I think we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, maybe Bundesliga and then off to Spain. Sounds good. Cool. Welcome back. Uh, so next up, Bundesliga uh, this weekend. A lot of like kind of kind of weird games. Some some interesting results. Uh, but first and foremost was Friday night. Friday night's game to kick off the weekend's action. Wolfsburg five, Werder Bremen three. Um, absolutely back and forth game. The lead or I guess Werder equalized uh twice and or Werder actually opened the scoring Leonardo Bet- Bittencourt and then Wolfsburg took the lead then Werder equalized then Wout Weghurst uh scored in the 37th minute then Werder Bremen <laughs> equalized again and then Weghurst scored a fourth in the 76 and then uh Bialik in the in the uh 95th minute sealed things for Wolfsburg um, Werder obviously kind of, well, I guess we'll start with Wolfsburg, the winners, they climbed a fifth and are, are we talking about, despite this kind of crazy scoreline, are we talking about Wolfsburg as potentially climbing up into that upper crust of, of teams this season? Hmm. I mean, they are looking at the table. They are un undefeated. It looks like. Holy crap. Yeah. Them, <laughs> I, they have been slowly like they've been <laughs> under my radar. <laughs> they've been drawing a lot. Uh, drawing a lot for yeah. sure. But they have turned it around and they've won four of their last five. So they opened the season with four draws, <laughs> four draws out of their first five. And now they've now they've, you know, won four and only drawn one of their last five still undefeated. And along with Leverkusen are the only those are the only two teams that have not lost so far in the Bundesliga this season. Nuts. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they challenge for the title, but certainly they can probably hang around the European places because they, they've been pretty decent defensively. I mean, you know, clearly they, they concede three here, which is almost almost half the goals they've conceded this season. But I think if they can at least stay solid in the back and then just allow their attackers to 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 do what they do, they can be around those European spots. But I mean... I think the title very much is still Byron's to grab, unfortunately. But Wolfsburg, man, I, I need to pay a bit more attention to them. Um, <laughs> they've been uh, they've been under my radar for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know the instinct, obviously, of a lot of Americans is to watch uh, to watch Werder Bremen because of Josh Josh Sargent's involvement uh, with them. Um, but yeah, Wolfsburg certainly a team to watch as the season progresses because I mean, Veghorst is, is on one right now for, for Wolfsburg. He's giving me big, uh, oh my God, Das, uh, Das Boss or Baz Dost (laughs) energy with the, uh, yeah, he's just, he's flying for them right now. Yeah. Just a big, big target, man. Um, yeah, he's a he's a very good player, and and John Brooks is very in, involved in this one too with the yeah. own goal and then a, a goal as well. So, 
Um, Wolfsburg are also of interest to, to U.S. men's national team fans because Brooks is arguably the first center back on the team sheet, um, yeah. you know, for better or for worse. But uh, yeah, wow. I did not know that Wolfsburg were doing as well as they are. Yeah. Uh, and really, yeah, just four wins, but the five draws carrying them, carrying them up the table um, as it stands. Uh, the, the big kind of seismic results of the weekend, though, happened on Saturday, and it was Dortmund 1, FC Köln 2, and Köln winning their first game of the season uh scary uh, for for Cohn scoring from two corners and Cohn hadn't scored from a corner the entire season they score in t- two in one game um and knock out knock out Dortmund is this the type of game that happens when I think we've talked about it earlier this season too Dortmund loads of attacking talent, loads of promise in lots of in lots of areas. But they have this kind of naive vibe about them right now. Yeah, yeah, I mean this is what happens with them if 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 the young players are not on it on the day then it's very hard to, it's very hard to get a result and I think uh while they can while Dortmund can be very exciting to watch, I think this is kind of you know, Arsene Wenger said it best when he was managing is that he pays for the development of young players in points. And I think Dortmund do that exact same thing. I think that's their philosophy. I think they accept it. Yeah. Um, but to lose to FZ Cullen is pretty shocking. It's Cullen's first victory against Dortmund in 29 years. So Insane. just historic, <laughs> um, a historic result for FZ. Um, and then the, the goals, both Shkiri goals are like identical. Yeah. Uh, there's a, you know, in swinging cross to, you know, corner to the far post that no Dortmund player gets ahead to. I guess there's zonal marking or I, I don't know what the hell. They allow it to bounce <laughs> too scary for an open net. Like both yeah. goals are that exact, exact sequence. It was bizarre. Um, so, yeah, I mean, fair play to FSA, obviously. Uh, hopefully this is something they can they can build on um, because they've been a bit of a yo-yo club in, in recent seasons. Um, and, and Dortmund just have to go back to the to the drawing board and 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 see what they can do next. I mean, everyone's got Champions League coming up, so they they'll have to put this away and out of their minds pretty quickly. Yeah, I think Erling Holland unfortunately has to kind of wear the wear the loss um, a little bit because he does have a couple of guilt edge chances that you'd expect him to put away with the amount of quality that he's shown early on in his in his young career. He's you know obviously one of the most lethal finisher finishers you know or certainly young strikers in Europe um but he uh he kind of fails to put a couple away and like you said it's it's something that happens in these sorts of games and yeah Colin climb out of the drop zone for the time being um on six points one ahead of Mainz uh who uh were able to draw this weekend uh but Schalke though on the end of a, a hiding from your club Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, yes. The woes continue for Schalke and and Gladbach back to back to winning ways and trying to kind of build on their uh, their their form in the Champions League and carry that over to to some solid form in the Bundesliga as well to to climb up the table a little bit. Yeah, it's been a 
weird start to the season for Gladbach. A lot of inconsistency. And we, if I'm not mistaken, create the most chances in the league without scoring. Um, <laughs> and so it was nice to see the boys just explode for four in this one. And um, Schalke, man, I just, what can we say about Schalke? I mean, they're just shockingly bad. And there, there's even more turmoil at the club than the last time we spoke about them um, with, you know, players being suspended and um, just things like that. <laughs> like, it's just crazy at Schalke right now. And I think they look doomed. They look like they are out of answers and they've got they have no new manager bounce like nothing it's just going their way and I think a lot of it is very unfair um to them because they do have good players but it's just not working right now um but you know I'm happy for the result obviously and, and Gladbach face Inter um in midweek in the Champions League and can you know just continue on in the group the uh a, another f- just fun one this weekend. Union Berlin, Eintracht Frankfurt, 3-3. Three, three. Uh, Max Kruse with two. Andre Silva with two for Frankfurt. Um, Bas Dost, who we just mentioned, added the uh, the uh, third for Frankfurt before Kruse equalized in the 82nd minute. Um, Union quietly, well, maybe not so quietly, up to sixth. And they haven't lost in their last five. Haven't lost in their last five, and they score a ton of goals. They've scored twenty-one goals on season already. Yeah. I mean that's equal that's with Dortmund. Equal with Dortmund, yeah. They <laughs> they concede slightly more, but I mean that's really good. They're they're giving me first season like Sheffield United vibes almost, like just greater than the sum of their parts. Sure, um, and just show. playing, yeah, just playing very well indeed. And um, yeah, that's a. That's actually very impressive of Union. Hopefully they can crack on and and if they can get into Europe after <laughs> what, you know, their fairy tale coming up into the league, that would be amazing. That yeah, that would be insane. I mean, this is a club that literally invites as we talk about Christmas time, like invites their fans into the stadium with couches to watch Christmas movies on the scoreboard. So like Oh my god. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Wish that could be a thing this year. I don't know. Well, maybe I don't know. It's outdoors. Maybe that could be a thing, like yeah. a safe thing, but I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um another newly promoted side that is kind of performing pretty well recently and uh with a with a noteworthy coach, uh Stuttgart looked like they were gonna give Bayern a problem this weekend and looked capable of doing so. And then Byron just flip a switch after Coman's goal. And suddenly they just they just seem to overwhelm teams when whenever they want. And in this case, they run away 3-1 winners. But Stuttgart played well. Like you look at the stats, similar, you know, four shots on target for Stuttgart to six for Bayern. Um, you know, Stuttgart had 42% of the ball, which not bad considering Bayern, you know, the quality of Bayern. Um but they just they just are inevitable. Like they're right. Byron or Thanos. Like literally that's what my notes say. Byron are inevitable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that really that really sums it up. Uh, Stuttgart, I think they I think they can still take a lot of positives from this match. And chief among them being uh, Tangi Kulabali. He looks a proper player, the uh, young striker who came through uh PSG's youth setup and then joined um, Stuttgart. He looks very, very good indeed, and he scores his first goal for um, 
for the club in the Bundesliga. So, you know, that's a plus. And like you said, the possession wasn't, you know, a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. I had an eye on one eye on this game because we've got uh, Arsenal have Costas Mavropanos on loan at Stuttgart and, um, you know, conceding three to Byron. I, I don't think that's it's, there's not a lot of shame in that. And uh, there was just a lot of quality on display by Byron. I mean, come on. And Costa have two nearly identical goals um, near post finishes on the ground, just on opposite flanks. And then, of course, I mean, Lewandowski, the best striker in the world for me, um, adding a goal in between those. So, I mean, Byron continue their march to the title as far as I'm concerned. Stuttgart will just have to put this one behind them. Yeah, Stuttgart, I think the the concern for them is that they... Well, it's not even a concern, just in terms of trying to climb the table. Because I think they want to be... They want to comfortably consolidate um, this season, having just come back up... Um, and so the only the only concern I you know from my seat is they have a lot of draws and at some point you've mm-hmm. got to start turning some of those into wins. Um, right. But overall, I mean they they have played extremely well, um, all things considered, and they have they hadn't lost um, since their loss to Freiburg on the nineteenth of September. Um, so that they've had a really good stretch um, spanning, you know, a couple of months now uh, where they hadn't lost between, between that game and, and this one to Byron. So they, they certainly have a, have built themselves a good platform to, to build on. And with Werder Bremen up next, then it's Dortmund. They'll definitely want to get the Bremen win to, uh, you know, to, to ensure some points before uh, a nice little stretch kind of out of the, the the big boys um but anyways stuttgart have have impressed me i think in in their ability to just hang around these games which i think when you look at the other you know newly promoted side uh arminia bielfeld it's they don't really have that ability so i think stuttgart's been impressive in their ability to you know these are these are competitive games like they they look like they fit in at this level um and they're and they're league the position in the league table shows shows that and supports that i think so um last thing on germany before we before we move um over i just want to give a quick shout out we talked we talked about dinamo dresden the last time dinamo grabbing a big win three nil over over duisburg uh they climb up to second and they're actually level with leaders Saarbrücken on points um, behind just a couple of goals on goal difference. Uh, Dinamo, I, I have to shout this out as well. Dinamo uh, played their game a couple weekends ago against 1860 Munich. On It was on YouTube for free. We watched it as we spoke about on this podcast. And a, a text I got from Pat Staley, uh, a Liverpool fan, friend of mine and co-host on the two red gringos podcast. He texted me because he turned it on because it was free on YouTube and it was an international break. So there was no other games. Otherwise you wouldn't catch Pat dead watching any sort of lower division soccer. He is, he's an elitist and (laughs) he would be the first to admit that he doesn't stoop to these levels. Um, (laughs) <laughs> no he uh so he was watching the game and mika i think you'll enjoy this he said did arson wenger come out of retirement to manage this team because <laughs> they play some really good stuff like and they we do. talked they about do. it last week 
it was on show again today. They they were at their free flowing best against Duisburg, who are towards the bottom of the table. Granted, but um, Dinamo looking more and more like the promotion contenders that they should be. And now uh, they've got the points total to kind of show that up above Ingolstadt, 1860 Munich uh, and the like. Yeah, that's awesome. But I'm just trying to figure out how is Saarbrook in like first? <laughs> like, that's crazy. Also a good question because they are <laughs> newly promoted, I think. Uh, like, I think they came up from the regional league, um, if not last year, then very recently. Um, it's nuts. Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah. But yeah, fair play to Dinamo. Hopefully they can come up. I would love to see them in, in the top flight one day. That would be awesome. Just more more East Germany representation is is always fine by me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's always fun to watch. And, and it's especially depressing, obviously, seeing that 30,000 seat stadium sit empty. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know, it will be great when when fans can come back in. And I've always I've always thought that uh, that would be such a um, just such a, a massive get. Not I think it would just be a great get for German football in general because it just broadens the it adds a little bit of history to kind of what's going on in Eastern European football um, and, or Eastern German football. Sorry. Um, and so, yeah, I just I just hope that you know, one day they can realize that, but the finance side of things is going to make that is going to make that a challenge for, for Dinamo, unfortunately. Um, but off to Spain, Mika, the, I mean, I don't think there's anywhere else to start talking about this, this weekend in La Liga, than Real Madrid one Deportivo Alaves two at, the uh stadio uh i can never get this because it's supposed to be the bernabeo but it's under construction and it's the alfredo di stefano alfredo di stefano yeah (laughs) so um real madrid drop another three points they're down to fourth uh this was another one like i mean yeah they have tons of the ball they have loads of shots but they end up with less shots on target than Deportivo and end up on the wrong side of a loss. It's Madrid is just looking inconsistent. Uh, like, I don't know if there's really any other way to any other way to slice it. Yeah. And I mean, I, <laughs> Zinedine Sedan said after the game that he has no explanation for the result, which like, obviously oh, he, no. he might say <laughs> one thing to the press and, and he might know exactly why this happened, but, Either way, let's take it at face value. Like, this is a crazy one. Yeah. Um, Real Madrid have been conceding weird ones. They've been, con- they've conceded like five penalties in the past like two games or something insane like that. A lot of individual errors. I mean, Thibaut Courtois, bruh. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, those are things that what is a manager meant to do about those kind of freak goals? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But either way, it, you know, they're missing Sergio Ramos in this one. Obviously, that's a, a huge miss for them. Marcelo starts again. They lose again. Um, uh, it's and, and, you know, let's let's give some credit to Alaves, too. I think that the the game plan worked fantastically. Arsenal legend Lucas Perez ran the show <laughs> for Alaves. 
Yeah. Obviously, I'm being facetious. He was a, <laughs> a Wenger panic buy, but he did score for us in the Champions League. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he was excellent for Alaves. And every time they got on the break, you just felt like they could, you know, do something. They could hurt Madrid. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, going back a little bit to Madrid, there's just so many players in the side that look like off the pace or like they're being misused or not used at all. I mean, Marco Asensio, like he was so exciting when he kind of burst out onto the scene and he just looked, he just looked anonymous, you know? And, and um, obviously last season he had that major injury and he lost a lot of playing time in a crucial part of his career. Um, But you would think he would have been, you know, back at it by now. And he just, he gets substituted I hate seeing Martin Odegaard not being used. Uh, I think Real Sociedad could certainly have used him this season now that David Silva is injured. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're still top of the table without him, but I just, you know, I hate to see in general the big clubs like hoard talent and not use it. So, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it it's just a weird one for Real Madrid. I think that the league... I mean, I don't know. It's still early days, but they need to they need to really get some a string of good results together if they want to have a shot at at La Liga. I think their their crosstown rivals Atleti are probably favorites still at this point. Yeah, and and I think at Atleti, uh, well, I we'll we'll get to them in the se- in a second. I cannot leave talking about this match without discussing that set piece routine. Uh, <laughs> I almost forgot about that. Oh my god! I can't. I I can't let it slide. Martin Odegaard, unfortunately, involved as as you mentioned, uh, and Isco uh, also involved. <laughs> like I mean, it's it's. I mean, if you haven't seen it, go look it up because it's absolutely ridiculous. Martin Odegaard tries to play a short ball to Isco, and Isco just has his back to the play, and <laughs> Odegaard throws his arms up like. Bruh, yeah. like we talked about this. So I don't even necessarily, I, I don't know what happened there. I th- Do you think it's Isco's fault or Odegaard's? I, I almost think Isco wasn't paying attention. Yeah, it seemed like <laughs> it seemed like a miscommunication. Like it seemed like it must yeah. have been, I don't know, like uh, it was so bizarre in the manner that it happened that when you first <laughs> watch the video, you're almost not sure what you're looking at. Like, <laughs> like that's how disorienting and jarring of a because it's just like wait who's even i don't know who's meant to be receiving the ball like i don't know who you know because it they're so on different pages that it almost doesn't look like it's a set piece it looks like martin odegaard right. is trying to give the ball to isco to take the free kick like yeah that's like how yes, bad to restart play yeah like, that's, <laughs> well and then like all of us start to counter and isco's just like standing there like his back is still to the yeah. plate. <laughs> it's just like what are you doing yeah Isco- um, he does try to like rescue it with a really good long range effort at the end that, that hits the post but yeah. isco is another one of those players that is out of form and out of favor and apparently you know when real or barca have a player that is you know likely on the move of course the the rumor is arsenal so (laughs) i would have loved isco like five years ago but i I don't know we'll see i guess in january isco that though that those two moments next to each other the like walking away and not even knowing what's going on and him cracking the bar with a lovely strike like yeah that is isco to me like yeah yeah absolutely brilliant 
in in moments, but just like possibly just like brain dead. Like I have no idea <laughs> what you know what he he just is so inconsistent. And I think a lot of ways that's been enforced by by Madrid's handling of his career. But because he's always played second fiddle to somebody, like yeah, he was there. Yeah. They bring in James, like. He's there. Ronaldo is obviously the star. Like, but they bought James Rodriguez when Isco was like just bursting on the scene yep. and just completely like squashed his development for a player that they would then loan out for the next four years. Like, right. Which is insane. Like, and then I, he still wasn't no. first choice because you've got a ball and door winner and Luka Modric in front of you. Right. Like, yeah. 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 It's just, uh, I don't know. Another case of, I guess, it's what I worry about for Kai Havertz. Like that's what that's what I can <laughs> that same concern. It's the Isco complex um, or whatever. <laughs> uh, so we mentioned Atletico. Um, they get kind of an ugly win against Valencia, um, and I think bringing in so Jake Konecki, uh, uh asked on Twitter or just stated on Twitter, I think we should say, seemed like Valencia played pretty decent, especially Dominic defensively against Atleti. Am I wrong in that thinking I'm hanging by a thread here? I think, I mean, all things considered in the the form that Atleti come into this game, and this is not terrible from Valencia. I think this is pretty good. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Jake. I think they were pretty decent. Dominic made a lot of really important saves and, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, because I, I wanted to speak about Tomal Lamar, who I thought had a good game, um, very involved in the attack for once. I mean, his time at Atleti has been pretty lackluster, but I thought in this one he was really good. But now that I think about it, a lot of those shots were from distance. Um, Valencia really weren't conceding dangerous space to Atleti for them to to capitalize. And in the end, it ends up being... You know, a, a Tony Lato on goal, the, the ball just kind of squeaks through to him and he is not anticipating it in that area. And unfortunately, it goes in their own net. So, yeah, this is not shameful, you know, for on Valencia necessarily. And um, yeah, Atleti certainly win ugly in this one. I think this is the sort of match that certainly in England, and I'm not sure how the Spanish media handles stuff like this. Um, but this is the sort of match that, that they would point to and say, this is the stuff that champions are made of where even when they're not at their, their high flying best. And even when they're not, everything's not necessarily going their way, they still find a way to win. And the one mm-hmm. nil, this is a little more in line with the Simeone that we know, uh, you know, versus some of the results that he's been able to get out, you know, like the drubbing of Kadith, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, like not right. exactly what we're used to, but he's now shown, I mean, they are by far the, the like hottest team in, in La Liga at the moment. And they are still undefeated. Um, and with two games in hand on Sociedad trailing by only one point, I mean, Atleti, when they play those games, could potentially establish a lead here in La Liga, unlike anything that we're seeing in other leagues across Europe. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the Spanish media are trying to kind of get Simeone to say that they're the favorites, <laughs> which obviously he's <laughs> not going to do. I think they very much have prided themselves in in 
the Simeone era on being underdogs. Um, I think the only thing that could potentially get in the way of a title charge for Atleti is, of course, the Champions League uh, pursuit. They've got a crucial matchup coming up against Bayern, who've already, you know, sealed their place in the knockouts. Atleti still, I think, need to win their next two games, if I'm not mistaken, to to qualify. So, um, obviously, using their depth and managing minutes appropriately is going to become very important. And, um, you know, I would love to know kind of if Simeone sees the state of the league and the state of Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and, uh, you know, the competition around them and wants to prioritize La Liga or if they're trying to really battle on all all fronts but um yeah i mean i'd let the are i think favorites at this point yeah it's it's kind of kind of a stunning state of affairs um but not not crazy given obviously all of the situations around europe i think right. from this point with the games in hand over sociedad and they have a three a three point lead over Villarreal and a gosh six point lead over Real Madrid at this point it's starting to get into territory where if they don't see it out it could be seen as a bottle job like it's still very early but we're starting to get to that point where if they don't get it done I mean there are a lot of advantages at the moment and I don't know that they'll ever have Real Madrid and Barcelona both in like such disarray um, that's so true. Yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is Simeone's time to shine. He's done it. I mean, he's done it once before. So yeah, it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the expectation is going to start to grow that this team gets something done and they only have five points in the champions league, but are still second in that group because Bayern is just absolutely laying waste to everybody. Mm-hmm. So they still have the advantage to advance in the Champions League. I think for any Atleti fan, they aren't going to put the Champions League ahead of a potential La Liga win. Um, and I think Simeone might know that. Um, but I don't think they bottled it, or I don't think they like throw the Champions League by any stretch of the imagination. Um, For sure, it'll just be interesting to see how they manage it, uh, especially with the the wear and tear. But at least they have five subs in in all competitions. So <laughs> there's also that <laughs> um, the uh, a kind of resounding result. But this is a result that added to that adds to my like misunderstanding or just just lack of of general like. I don't know what to think about Barcelona. They beat Osasuna 4-0. Obviously, Osasuna not like, you know, not a massive challenge for a team as talented as Barcelona. Does this change anything for the state of Barcelona? Or is it just still kind of, you know, they 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 barely know what they are? Uh, I don't know if this changes too, too much. I mean, obviously, it's a good result and um Antoine Griezmann I'd like to point him out I thought he had a very good game obviously he thwacked that one volley that (laughs) like at like 120 miles an hour or whatever the hell it could have definitely taken someone's head off I'm glad the keeper didn't get anywhere near it yeah (laughs) go watch that goal definitely goal of the weekend yeah um and then of course Messi also scores and and celebrates for for Maradona as we discussed but 
again, why I think this doesn't change anything and why actually things might get worse is now they've got no recognized like starting center backs available now that Clement Langley has also uh, joined the injury list, it would seem, yeah. along with uh, Gerard Piquet, um, Samuel Titi, obviously, who may or may not be finished. Um, yeah. and, and so I think Frankie de Jong might see some time in the back line. Um, he could play that role. He's played that role before um, for, for Ajax, but I don't know that he necessarily enjoys it. But uh, we'll see how Barca deals with their own uh, injury crisis. So Yeah. Yeah, I think uh I think we you spoke about it over the weekend too on Twitter and and I think there was a lot of discourse going back and forth about this, but Martin Braithwaite starting I think made a difference for Barcelona. Um having a recognized striker and kind of going back to a recognizable system in terms of like like I think with a striker in there it is reminiscent of Guardiola's 4-3-3. Um, cause he was always, he always had that guy up top, whether it's Eto or Ibrahimovic or, um, David Villa, like he always had someone who was the striker. Um, and they've tried this whole false nine thing. Didn't, hasn't worked. Never really like felt right. It, you know, unless Messi is just absolutely flying, then it's, it's not really, it's not really the, the look for them. And then in this one, they start Braithwaite. He gets a goal. Griezmann gets a goal. Messi gets a goal. And Coutinho puts the cherry on top. Uh, I just think, like, they kind of have to... I don't think it's necessarily Braithwaite long-term. Um, but I got to think that the way that they're set up with the personnel they have now, especially with Griezmann, having a nine does, benefits him so much because that's what he played off of at Atleti. He played off of off of you know strikers and was amazing. And then they tried to play him off of kind of this this false nine, and it hasn't worked. They've played him as the false nine. That definitely hasn't worked. So um, yeah, I just think having a recognized striker in there. It's obviously a small sample size, and it's one game against Osasuna. But I don't know. I just think that there's enough of a body of work there from Griezmann to think like, hey, maybe we should get someone up there to actually play as a nine. And maybe that will help him out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think everything you said is absolutely spot on. I joked at the weekend about Martin Brathwaite. Like, I don't know what he's doing at Barcelona. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but to be fair, he does create a lot of space for other players and can bring other players into the play, namely Antoine Griezmann, who, as you said, plays off the shoulder of another striker. So absolutely he can function in this team. And, and um, maybe that's something that we see from, from Kuman going forward is, is involving an actual striker. Um, and, and Brathwaite's not a bad player. I mean, he was playing very well for Leganes before he got plucked out of, you know, <laughs> relative obscurity to join Barcelona. So um yeah, no, I, I agree completely with what you said there. Um, you know, I kind of crapped on Barcelona a little bit for the injuries at the back, but <laughs> attacking wise, it was it was a good display, and and we'll see if it can continue. I think a big part of it too is that Messi needs to stop sulking. Maybe the I you know I hate to say that this might be a motivation, but maybe the passing of Maradona will kind of put things in perspective for him and inspire him. I think it certainly inspired him against Osasuna, so it, it might do going forward. 
Uh, Patrick Ariola on Twitter just asked more rumors of Messi leaving Barca for Man City. Um, there's obviously a lot of the talk is happening on social media. Um, but for Pat, he just said as a, he's a City fan, but the chatter is getting a bit hard to take. Um, do you think, I mean, obviously Leo has been a little off, it seems, this season so far. He's been a little weird uh, in kind of some of his mannerisms and, and all of that. Um, now with what you said and maybe some of this perspective being brought, do you think there's any, do you think there's a chance that he maybe tries to stick it out at, at Barca or do you think he, he tries to make a move? I think we'll have a better idea about that in the spring when presidential elections, um, occur and, uh, and the, the new regime finally, uh, takes over at Barcelona, um, because there was always kind of that that thought that maybe Messi is leveraging his well himself um, to get it you know get some changes going at the very top of the club, um, and and I don't know what Leo himself has to say about it. Wouldn't we all want to know? I mean, yeah. he, obviously he's very uh, you know unequivocal in the fact that he wanted to leave last summer, but um, City continued to deny you know, any interest and, and Pep always says, you know, I want Messi to finish his career at Barcelona. Messi himself has always said if he were ever to leave Barcelona, it would be for Newell's and nobody else. Right. But I mean, it's, I, I have a, I don't know. I always feel like the best players in the world want, want to challenge themselves and, and why wouldn't he want to play in the Premier League and for Pep Guardiola and for city on a massive deal, you know, yeah. uh, that would be, a game changer for for Manchester City, I think. But um, yeah, let's see in the spring. I I would say we'll probably have a better idea. Yeah, yeah, it'll be an interesting one to watch for sure. And I'm sure there will be plenty of of kind of talk about it uh, between then and now. But certainly, um, you know, any concrete move is is still a ways away. Uh, and I'm sure Messi will be. For all his his kind of persona as the humble guy, um, I'm sure there will be plenty of of pomp and circumstance around his decision um, of whether he stays or goes. But uh, a couple other results in La Liga, I just wanted to to point out. Uh, Celta Vigo, I think, is the biggest one uh, in terms of a kind of. I don't know if it's, you know, a massive victory, but it is a victory for Celta Vigo, which have been hard to come by recently. And people not named Diago Aspas on the score sheet. Three goals as, as well. Nolita, Baeza and Beltran um, for Celta Vigo. And uh, they beat a Granada side that is eighth. Um, and in some style, they absolutely battered him, uh, which has got to be, at least a little bit heartening for Celta Vigo. Can they build on it? I guess becomes a question. <laughs> yeah, that is the question, isn't it? You you point out rightly that the goal scorers were not um, Iago Aspas, but he was by all accounts man of the match. I think a lot of things ran through him. He had an assist and uh, just played his heart out for his club. And um, I think this is their first win since like mid September something insane like that. And they're still in in the relegation places, but hopefully they can build on this because again, I always, there's for me, there's always got to be at least one Galician club in La Liga. And and I would hate to see Celta go down after what happened with, with that four. So 
um, yeah, we'll see if they can build on it. Uh, the I think a lot of the same problems are still there, but this was a very good display. And Granada, uh, the problems kind of mounting after a really good start to the season. They've lost three on the bounce now, so they uh, they'll certainly be looking to kind of arrest the slide um, as it uh, as their season continues because they they've got they've built themselves a nice little foundation, but <laughs> you don't want to let that fade too early because um, you can find yourself in trouble pretty quickly, especially with how close some of these uh, races are. Um, you know, Celta Vigo on ten, uh, Vigo on ten points, Granada on fourteen, all the way up in eighth to eighteenth. So that's <laughs> you know we're talking about very fine margins. Um, the big matchup at the top of the table, and something that I was hoping was going to be kind of more of the. Uh, I was really hoping for like a big kind of match to match the occasion. Um, but Sociedad and Villarreal kind of more of more of what you'd expect pair of penalties one one draw and uh, yeah. unable to separate the two teams. Yeah, kind of Chelsea Spurs vibes with this one. I mean, two teams at the, at the top of the table and you think it's going to be this huge goal scoring fest, but they end up they end up canceling each other out with the penalties, as you said, and and. Footballing wise, it wasn't a great game, if I'm being fair. No. Um, but you know, two teams that are well coached, and I don't think either of them will be too too upset with with the result, um, with the draw, sharing the points. Um, but still, the fact that Sociedad Villarreal is is like a top table clash is really awesome <laughs> to yeah. say, because um, they're both clubs that are like the secondary clubs in their region, you know, having to contend with, with athletic in, in the Basque country and with Villarreal, Valencia and, and others around them. Um, so yeah, it's, I think the result is one they just move on from and, and keep going. Yeah. It, it, it'll be, I think both those clubs uh, will, will still be in and around these places uh, as the season progresses, maybe a little bit of movement up and down, but certainly, Sociedad, I, I hope they can continue pushing Atleti even at, even if they do eventually jump ahead. That would just make for an interesting run in. Um, but the last the the last result of the weekend, uh, well, it was actually I guess today. Um, Betis uh, at home against Ibar, two nil loss, uh, and Betis just absolutely struggling at the moment they lost four of their last five and three on the bounce it's it's just not a good time for real betsy's right now no that we uh this is two straight matches not having scored um and it's weird because betty started okay i mean as far as being on the ball abar had a good they had a goal go in that got chalked off but eventually they come away two nil winners and uh I don't know what needs to happen with Betis. I mean, I don't know if it's too soon, I think, to sack the manager. But at the same time, like as they tumble down the table, it's, you know, they're they're 15th right now. And that's with just two points separating them and Celta Vigo, who are, you know, in that first relegation spot. So, yeah, yeah something needs to happen quickly in, in Seville for, for them because it's just not good enough. The last team that they beat was Elche. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's it's just not good enough um 
yeah, I don't know. Goal scoring, goal scoring has been hard to come by um, for sure for Real Betis. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's something they need to address in the, the January window. Although the January market is obviously terrible, especially for the smaller <laughs> clubs, but uh, yeah, yeah, just and a good result for Abar, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Credit to Yoshinori Muto who scores uh, the opener, and uh, I I love that little like Japanese contingent in Ibar. It's like such a weird <laughs> thing yeah. uh, for like this village club to have this like international vibe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, him and Omi like uh, their their little partnership in attack uh, is, is just yep. really cool. And uh, yeah, I, overall, it is a really great win for them. And, and, and they kind of hop up a little bit um, up into 12th. But but Betis, yeah, it's 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 bad. And Pellegrini is, is going to be under pressure, especially given the, you know, the the tools that he does have, especially in attack. I mean, with Sanabria, Fakir and, and Teo. Joaquin even like even though I know he's kind of getting up there like these are these are players that you expect to put the ball in the back of the net and it's just not happening uh yeah. for whatever reason um so yeah it's it, this is a, a challenge for Pellegrini certainly to to kind of arrest whatever this slide is that they're on yeah absolutely we'll see if he can do it I mean obviously he's a very experienced coach and uh, one that I thought would be a very good fit for Real Betis, but it's just not happening at the moment. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end, but I think just one more uh, one more quick break, and then we'll talk uh, some Champions League and round things out with the sounds of the season. Sounds good. Welcome back. Well, Mika, it is Tuesday tomorrow <laughs> and Wednesday, which means it's Champions League match days um, because every week is a Champions League match day now, um, which is cool, but also insane. Uh, so <laughs> it feels like the group stage has absolutely flown by. We're already on match day five uh, of six and we're starting to get into qualification territory. Um, if I, you know, granted there are teams that already have it locked up, but this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of those, those close shaves and, and those groups that are still close run things. So, I mean, the question is what games are sticking out to you as the ones that you've got to watch, uh, in these match days. Um, Given Ooh. the one, which I know you're going to be tuning in to Gladbach Inter Milan, um, for sure, because the context of that group, Gladbach obviously top of the group at the moment, as we spoke about earlier. Real Madrid right behind on seven points to Gladbach's eight, Shakhtar on four points, Inter Milan on two. So Gladbach, if if Inter don't win. They're effectively eliminated from advancing in the Champions League. And if they don't win and Shakhtar pick up anything, they could be eliminated from the Europa League. Is that really how that shakes out? Oh, my goodness. You're right. Wow. Shakhtar are on four. So, I mean, if they if they get any sort of result against Madrid, they put Inter Milan under a lot of pressure. 
And then as we know, Madrid can be gotten at yeah. in, in the league and in the Champions League. Yeah, that's crazy. I, of course, I'll be watching Gladbach um, against uh, Inter. But um, other than that, who looks tasty as well? I think. I mean, Atleti, Bayern. I know Bayern have already qualified, but I just want to see if, if Atleti can can further secure their their place. Um, and then another one that's interesting, although maybe not given some of the injuries, is is Liverpool Ajax. Um, at least attacking wise, you feel like that's a fun one. Yeah. Um, but who knows what sides we'll actually see in reality. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good fixtures coming up in the midweek as well as in uh, uh, on the next day, of course, with, um, I mean, she's Manchester United, PSG, Sevilla, Chelsea, Dortmund, yeah. Lazio. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. The, the United PSG game and by extension, the Leipzig, uh, Bashak Shahir game are like, this group is, Obviously, United, I think, can be really happy with how it's gone so far with just, you know, three wins and, and a loss. Um, mm-hmm. And they've played really well. But the crazy thing about this group is that they've all beaten each other up to the extent that PSG are just three points behind United and Leipzig are also three points behind United. So yep. United can't really afford to slip up because a win for PSG over United and an, and an RB Leipzig win over Bashak Shahir. And suddenly they're all level on nine points. And it goes into that last match day where it's complete chaos and United must win basically. Um, so and I think we had called group H like a group of deaths. So yeah. <laughs> it's certainly panning out that way. Yeah. I think United, like as much as you don't want to go into a game against PSG with like a must win attitude, I think if United are get a result, they can safely, you know, say that they'll, that they'll qualify. Even if Leipzig could technically catch them on the last match day, I think, I think they'll have the group um, at that point, or they'll at least have advancement secured. Um, but if they get beat by PSG, like this group suddenly becomes pretty dicey. And what's crazy is a slip up on the last day against Leipzig could, <laughs> in theory, lead to United being eliminated after what has been a fantastic start to the campaign. But it could all go so south if they don't get these next two games right. Yeah, and, and I think that's the case for a lot of these. I mean, Atleti are kind of in the same boat with with how they need to approach the next two games. Yeah, just twenty twenty football things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it's really interesting. I think Sevilla Chelsea is the is the only group that is it's genuinely funny to look at now because I re- I held out hope that Ren could could put up a fight in this group, um, but Chelsea and Sevilla both on ten points. Kraus, Nadar, and Ren both on one point, um, which is just <laughs> unfortunate uh, for for those uh, teams of all. So Chelsea and Sevilla, the interesting thing there, you know, who will win and who will, like who will take the group and who will who will finish second because obviously impacting the seeding of uh, of everything. Um, but yeah, I think I think that group of of Man United, PSG, Leipzig, Bashaksha here is just suddenly so interesting because one you know, one result this way or that could throw it into complete complete turmoil. Um but 
yeah, PSG and Leipzig will like their chances of of uh, of getting. And PSG obviously have a bone to pick with United having having beat them in the last match day. So I think revenge is maybe the the storyline in a couple of these with with Atleti out for out for you know, revenge for the four nil. Um, Ajax uh, having to go to Liverpool this time, but they played pretty well in in their loss. It was a narrow defeat. Liverpool weren't really that great in that game um played decent but i think ajax will will maybe see this uh this match at anfield as a way to kind of um try to get back at liverpool a little bit and and get some some justice um for that match but yeah overall it's a it's a really compelling match day because obviously we're getting to the business end of the group stage and this is where it really starts to to heat up um and and as we see the seedings for for the next round it'll be really it'll be really interesting to see what sort of matchups pan out and who advances and everything so yeah i'll certainly be watching with interest and uh i just wanted to shout out um before we move on from the champions league uh steph stephanie for par from the french referee um who is going to become the first female referee to oversee a men's champions league game. Um, and she's going to be the center ref for the, uh, Juve game against Dinamo Kiev. So, I mean, shout out to her. That's a huge, huge achievement and follows up her being the first, the first female referee in league de league and the, she, uh, refereed the, uh, UEFA super cup final, um, I believe not this past year, but the year before when it was uh, Chelsea and uh, Liverpool in the in the mm-hmm. super, in the Super Cup. Um, so yeah, shout out to Stephanie for just breaking barriers. Yeah, that's really cool, especially when when the news broke this year about uh, Bibiana Steinhaus retiring. It's cool to see that someone else is gonna take up that mantle and yeah. hopefully we'll see more more female refereeing because they're just as good as the men if yeah. not better so. <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh and yeah it's just very cool to see to see the way that she's uh progressed you know from from the lower leagues of of france to um now to the the, the biggest stage in europe and so yeah shout out to her and uh well, Mika, we'll we'll wrap things up. Uh, we've got our sounds of the season playlist. We've got more additions. Um, but how can the people find the playlist? Yeah, so it is a Spotify playlist. So just open up Spotify and search sounds of the season or search hardcore football. And you should be able to find both our podcast and the playlist. So subscribe to both. And uh, we also have a link to it on our Twitter, and I'm sure we'll have a link to it in the tweet for this episode. So, yeah, just another way to interact with us and see kind of the weird things we listen to and uh, (laughs) um, kind of the music that's taking us through this season. Well, Mika, I'm interested to to hear your your additions each each week. We we add two songs. So which uh, which two you got? All right. So at the risk of our playlist turning into like a dance, Gavin dance stand playlist, <laughs> I've gone with another dance, Gavin dance song and it's called one in a million. I think that is exactly what Diego Maradona was. And so I dedicate that one to him. Um, uh, so may he rest in peace. 
And then my other one is more on the nose, I think, with my my feelings towards Arsenal. And I've gone with uh, something that produces results <laughs> by the early <laughs> November because that's what we need. We need something that produces results, whether it's a new system, uh, new players. Um, I guess for some on Arsenal's Twitter, a new coach. I don't quite agree with that <laughs> just yet, but uh, something. <laughs> what about you, Phil? What, do you, what have you got this week? Well, I I went with this is a this is a classic from like peak peak screamo days. Uh, <laughs> the band uh, Silverstein uh, with the song "Smile in Your Sleep," which uh, the basically the. The song is about being lied to um, mm-hmm. and being let down, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of fan bases across all you know all of European football that are feeling they're feeling a little let down at the moment. They're feeling you know they're not feeling like they're living up to expectations. So that that really resonated with me. And Silverstein just put out a what they called redo, um, which was just like a they re they re-recorded a bunch of like their old classic songs and it's this two-part album and they just released part two of it um this year but it's all re-recordings of all of like songs throughout their catalog um and so hearing smile in your sleep re-recorded and like actually brought into you know modern and good (laughs) like um uh, you know, quality production and, and all of that, like it, it sounds so good. And so it was just, uh, yeah, it was a throwback, but it brought into the new era. Um, and then, uh, and then in a similar, in a similar vein, um, because I just liked this theme, uh, I went with a, a song called forever marked by currents. Um, it is a way more intense, uh, song than smile in your sleep. But, uh, but, it has that same kind of theme of, of just, uh, you know, not, not living up to, to expectations and all that stuff. Uh, and plus like the, it has just a moment that I, as a fan of heavy music and of like particularly intense moments, it has a really, really great one, uh, right towards the end of the song and it's just super intense and amazing. So yeah, I, that was what I went with and, uh, yeah, hopefully you guys can, can find that one and enjoy it. It's both, I don't know, it's kind of like a throwback, but it's also, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff on it and it's just, uh, yeah, I think we said in the past, just, I enjoy putting it on shuffle and just seeing what happens. Um, cause we have, we have stuff that kind of runs the gamut of alternative or, or, uh, you know, rock music. So, um, Absolutely. so yeah, check it out and, uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. You know where to find us on all the, uh, major, major platforms. And, uh, well, I guess, I don't know. Am I, am I forgetting anything, Mika? No, I think we've covered a lot and thank you for telling me about the Silverstein shout. Cause I love, I loved Silverstein. So I'm going to go listen to those <laughs> redone songs now. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is quality and wor- well worth your time. Um, well, everyone hope you've enjoyed and uh, yeah, later. Later.